Lee Habib with our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and check out their great online courses. Their C.S. Lewis course is astounding, and you can share it with your whole family. Again, hillsdale.edu. This next American story is about the youngest Civil War general in the Union Army, an incredibly fearless man who scented his hair with cinnamon oil, a man whose heroics have been reenacted time after time for the big screen and for the stage. In fact, President Ronald Reagan played him in the 1940 Western Santa Fe Trail, a box office success that Reagan starred opposite Errol Flynn. A year later, Flynn also starred as this man in the biopic They Died With Their Boots On. You all know his name. This fascinating story will remind you why. On a desolate hillside amidst the rolling prairie of Montana, George Armstrong Custer made his last stand. Although one of the most successful military leaders in United States history, it was Custer's defeat that made him a legend and gave the American West its first true hero. Historians now cast a less glorious picture of George Custer, who is more likely referred to as a villain than as an American martyr. But one point is clear. George Custer was an exceptionally brave and effective combat leader. During America's bloody civil war, the 23-year-old Custer became the youngest and most admired general in the Union Army, with heroics that helped him win the most decisive battle at Gettysburg. Custer in a battle uh, was, was a thing of beauty. Uh, he, he could direct people with precision, uh, never get rattled. I mean, he just had a sense of physical courage uh, that was inspiring. And that's a real gift when you're out there in the chaos of war. And Custer had it. From an early age, it was clear that this Ohio boy was determined to transcend his lowly origins. His self-confidence so impressed his congressman that despite his lack of qualifications, he won a coveted spot at West Point in 1857. By the time of his graduation from West Point in 1861, Custer's insubordination helped him compile a list of infractions never before equaled in the history of the academy. Custer uh, would finish last in his class, but he wasn't stupid by any means. Whenever he was running into serious trouble, he'd hunker down and work his way back. And so, in one sense, he led a chaotic, fun-filled life, but on the other, there was a real discipline there. Although Custer was fresh out of West Point when the Civil War began, his exploits on the battlefield proved that he was more than ready for command. He never asked anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. In the bloodiest war in all of American history, is in the thick of the fighting from the first battle to the last battle, and he's barely scratched. It's just absolutely remarkable. Custer's luck. He called it, and he came to believe in it. Cited for bravery in his very first engagement at the Battle of Bull Run, 
the New York Tribune proclaimed, future writers of fiction will find in Brigadier General Custer most of the qualities which go to make up a first-class hero. Not only did the flamboyant Custer act the part of a hero, but he also dressed the part. It was like a, a circus rider gone mad, someone wrote. But those who at first thought this was just a showman quickly changed their mind because Custer was a fighter. His soldiers, they admired him, uh, even worshipped him. They emulated his dress and uh, his division began to sport red scarves uh, so that they could all look like Custer. Custer became known as the boy general and stayed on the very front lines until the last day of the Civil War, receiving the flag of truce when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. During the months following the surrender at Appomattox, the restless Custer found peace more challenging than war. But then in the fall of 1866, Custer received an offer to join the 7th Cavalry to protect gold miners and settlers from Sioux and Cheyenne tribes. Custer goes out to the Indian frontier. It's really the only active theater of operations. This isn't like the Confederates. The Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, they don't know the histories of, say, Napoleon Bonaparte's armies, and they don't care. Custer camps on top of hills so that he has a view of the countryside, builds big fires. Well, the first thing that happens, the enemy sees him and goes away. Then, on August 4th, 1873, while protecting the Northern Pacific Railroad workers in Montana, Custer and his 7th Cavalry were attacked for the first time by a large band of Sioux warriors who were led by Crazy Horse and the legendary medicine man, Sitting Bull. But the young braves attacked impetuously and with little planning. Custer, who had been taking an afternoon nap, reacted quickly and mounted an effective defense. After a brief skirmish, the Indians withdrew. Custer's first encounter with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse helped to confirm his belief that the Plains warriors tended to flee rather than fight. What he doesn't realize is he's fighting what we have come to know as a guerrilla war. It's not that he doesn't have courage to show, it's that he doesn't have a, a place to show it in because he can't find the enemy and display the courage the way he's used to. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our This Day in History segment. Well, it's Custer and the Little Bighorn Battle. When we come back, more of this great story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue with this great story of General Custer. 
The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 had created the Great Sioux Reservation, which encompassed most of the modern-day state of South Dakota, as well as millions of acres of hunting ground to the west and north, including the Black Hills. By the terms of the treaty, this land, which the American government viewed as worthless, had been granted to the Sioux forever. In return, they were supposed to cease hostilities against the Americans. The majority of the tribe had followed this course, but Sitting Bull remained defiant, refusing to acknowledge the treaty, let alone sign it. Then in 1874, thousands of Americans violated the treaty when a four-letter word made headlines across the country. It's uh, 1874 when the news hits the public that there's gold in the Black Hills. And this is a time of depression in the United States. And so those men who, and some women who can outfit themselves get their equipment and head to the Black Hills to mine for gold. The position of the U.S. government is that miners are going to invade that country and there's going to be a war with Indians, and that is inevitable. The white man had made a treaty with Red Cloud that said the Black Hills would be ours as long as the grass should grow and the water flow. Later, I learned that the long hair had found there much of the yellow metal that makes the white man crazy, and that is what made the bad trouble. Black Elk, 1874. Ironically, it was Custer himself who started this gold rush after leading an expedition into the sacred Sioux lands of the Black Hills and discovering the pay dirt. Custer has a great phrase. He says, we found gold among the roots of the grass. Uh, and he creates this image in that phrase that you just go there, you're a farmer, right? You're going to just plow up the land. You're going to plow up the land. First, you dig up the gold. You put the gold in the bank. Then you put your wheat in the ground. More than 15,000 miners flooded into the region, establishing the towns of Custer and Deadwood. The government offered to buy the Black Hills for $6 million, but the Sioux turned them down. Conflict was inevitable. Elements from Sitting Bull's camps come down and uh, threaten to kill any chief that touches uh, pen to paper. Finally, on November 3rd, President Ulysses S. Grant determined to eliminate this last pocket of Indian resistance in the West. Custer, now 36, was the natural choice to lead such an operation. His mission was to force Sitting Bull and his resistance onto the reservation or destroy them in the process. Putting Custer in charge of this operation showed that the American government meant business. Gentlemen, I want each of your men to carry 100 rounds of carbine, 24 rounds of pistol ammunition, rations, 15 days per man, Artac, coffee, sugar, 12 days of bacon, and another 50 rounds of ammunition per man on a mule train. Any questions? Sir, 15 day supplies without wagons? Chasing Indians, Colonel. Not cattle. Gotta be quick, gotta be mobile. Wagons will slow us right down. 
Do not hold me back. I will not have a single Indian say that he escaped the 7th Gavlin. Mark Kellogg, a small-town reporter for the Bismarck Tribune, was the only reporter on Custer's last campaign. His dispatches will be reprinted in the New York Herald. President Grant forbids the army from taking reporters with them, but Custer knows the value of publicity. Sir. General. We'll talk in the morning, Mr. Kellogg. Some of the officers seem unhappy. Repeat that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you're going to tell your readers, Mr. Kellogg? I'd like to hear your side, sir. Sit down. You want to catch Indians, you have to travel as they do. This is their country. They know it better. Tell your readers this. Seventh Cavalry's going to get them. Mr. Kellogg, we're going to war. We're not fighting white men. It's not Union and Confederates. For us, warfare has rules, not for the Indians. Tell you what's worse than how they fight. How they don't fight. The Indian feels no dishonor at running away. First sign of trouble, they'll scatter. Damn Redskins. Only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's a common view, Mr. Kellogg, and if you'll pardon me, plain stupid. If I was an Indian, I'd rather live on the open plains than submit to the confines of a reservation. Not that you readers want to read that either. My orders are clear, Mr. Kellogg. The Indians are to be subdued, driven back to their reservation. You're taking a lot of ammunition. <laughs> we may need it. You can print that. Custer had a kind of a tortured relationship uh, with Native peoples. He identified with them very strongly, uh, prided himself in his knowledge of their rituals and, and lifestyle. And so that, you know, at one point he's embracing them and in many ways imitating them. But on the other side, he was part of white civilization and saw them as a primitive race that were uh, going to eventually melt into the shadows. Custer and his 7th Cavalry are also joined by a company of Indian scouts, mostly Crow and Arikara, who as lifelong enemies of the Sioux allied themselves with the Americans. But in response to a plea from Sitting Bull, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes will join the Sioux in their fight. Within a week or so prior to the Battle of Little Bighorn, Many more of these reservation Indians were pouring into Sitting Bull's camps. This number swelled to probably 1,500 to perhaps as many as 2,000 warriors by June 25th. Seven to 8,000 individuals altogether. Sitting Bull has amassed the greatest gathering of Indians on the Northern Plains in its history. He sees it as his last stand against white encroachment. For Sitting Bull's people, there's no place to run. There's no place to go. This is it. Shortly after dawn on June 25, 1876, Custer ascends to an overlook called the Crow's Nest near the Little Bighorn River in Montana. They cannot see the village directly because the terrain is very deceptive. 
but in the valley of the Little Bighorn, uh, they can see arising a huge cloud of, of smoke. The Crows were the first ones to recognize the fact that there was, they said there was more Indians there than, 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 the, than the military had bullets. It was clear as a stream at sunrise. Well, so it's as good as anyone. I can't see anything. It's a big village. No Indians, nothing. Look for the wriggling worms. Worms? That'll be the pony herd. <sighs> Sir, if you don't find more Indians in that valley than you ever saw, you can hang me. It's a damn sight of good hanging you, wouldn't it? Today we rest up. Tonight we surround them. At daybreak, we attack. Play cute. Play cute. Last day. Aik Isla. He says if you must attack, it has to be today. Today, under cover, we rest. Tomorrow, they don't know what hit them. Well, then tomorrow we're going to have one big fight. That is my plan. Sir. Pack fell off one of the mules. I know. We sent some men to pick them up. They found it, sir. A mile or so back. There were two Indians by it. I trust they were dealt with. They got away, sir. Which direction? Get back to you, man. Gentlemen, the scouts assure me that the Indians are very close. How many, it's hard to say. But our presence has quite possibly been discovered. We have no choice but to launch our attack today. Today, sir. The men need rest. Horses, too. If we so delay one more day, that whole village could scatter. Hell, they might even attack us. Prepare your men. Yes, sir. Then, waving his hat in his hand, he declares... Gentlemen, we're gonna capture this village in one piece. Cross the river, take the women and children hostage. When the warriors return, they won't touch us. We caught him napping! Let's go get him, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! And when we come back after these messages, the final installment of this story, the showdown between Custer and the 7th Cavalry and the Indians led by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's our This Day in History segment, brought to us as always by Hillsdale College. And on this day in history in 1873, Custer and the 7th Cavalry were attacked by Indians led by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull for the first time. And of course, years later, they would fight again at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And let's return to the final installment of this remarkable story. We caught him napping! Let's go get him, boys. Finish this up and head for home. As they gallop into the Sioux camp, Custer makes a tactical decision and splits his cavalry into four parts.
900 against uh, 90 men down there were just overwhelming odds. As soon as Custer's cavalry arrive, Indians come pouring out of the village, and the outnumbered troopers begin a panicked retreat. The soldiers were not prepared. They were tired, they'd ridden all night long. They were fighting these Indians, and, and they, got, they got war paint on, and they look mean, you're scared of them. You're not going to act like normal. They were absolutely scared of, of, of the tribes coming in. Of course, the Indians took, took advantage of that. They could see warriors flitting around the woods. The sounds were incredible. The whistles, the screams, the, the firing of the guns, particularly bad with the arrows that were coming down through the trees. It was terrifying. It was over 90 degrees, it was hot, you had gunpowder in the air, you had people screaming, people crying, women on the battlefield that grabbing their tongue, uh, singing songs, singing praise songs. conventional warfare training is worthless against the Great Plains Indians. The Indians are moving up the gullies. They're not exposing themselves. They're not foolish enough to ride their horses around the soldiers uh, in Hollywood fashion. And then there was a rush. And Custer's last stand is over. Probably the whole battle from the time first Custer was engaged until the last man was killed did not uh, consume an entire hour. When the smoke from the battlefield lifts, every soldier under Custer's command is lost, all 225 men. The Indians lost only 60 braves. Custer's body is found at the crest of a flat-topped hill. His brother Tom lie beside him. His other brother Boston and nephew Audie along with his brother-in-law, Lieutenant Calhoun, lie nearby. News of the Battle of the Little Bighorn came like a thunderstorm out of the West, and it rained on the biggest parade of the century. In Philadelphia, all of the best and brightest of the United States, including all the top brass of the United States Army, had gathered for the centennial celebration of the United States of America. The Republic was 100 years old. But now came the news from the plains that Custer and the 7th Cavalry had been wiped out by the Sioux in Montana. Sherman and Sheridan responded as one. It's a lie. It couldn't possibly be true. But nevertheless, on July 4th, 1876, the news broke. Indeed, it was true. Custer was dead. The 7th Cavalry shattered. The Sioux were triumphant on the northern plains. An angry nation demanded answers. This was a thunderbolt. The West was won. 
How could this happen? It's like uh, the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic. You know, it just doesn't compute. So who was at fault? Custer was reckless according to the person who was doing the evaluating. Custer's personality, in fact, uh, is a product more of the person who's looking at him than it is Custer himself. Because who he was depends on who you are. And if you're inclined to see recklessness in uh, his actions, you will consider him to be reckless. If you are one of the Custer admirers, you will see in his every decision uh, uh, the marks of a military genius. It's funny that we have to blame someone. We can't, we can't say that the Army lost that fight because the Indians won. But the greatest Indian victory in the history of the West stirred a vengeance that the Plains Indians would regret to this very day. For Sitting Bull, who took no active part in the fight, gave his braves one simple command. Sitting Bull warned the people that when they die in camp, you are instructed not to take anything from them, nothing. Part of war is that you take their guns, you take their ammo, you take their clothing, you, these become trophies, booty of war, and, and all, all armies have done it. And so it was standard practice. But he warned the people, do not take anything from these soldiers when they die in our camp or great misery will befall our people. People did not listen to what Sitting Bull had told them, and they took everything they could. And after that, we know that they chased us to the four corners of this country and to Canada as well. And great misery has befallen our people ever since, even to this day. By the fall of that year, virtually all the Sioux and Cheyenne who fought in the battle were forced back onto the reservation. A year later, Crazy Horse turned himself in and was killed in a scuffle with guards. Sitting Bull escaped to Canada, but later returned to the United States. He had a part in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, reenacting the Battle of Little Bighorn. He died a reservation Indian. And what a story and great work on that as always, Greg. And what a period in our history. Complicated forces that we're going to, at some point or another, compete against one another. And a tragic ending for all involved and particularly the American Indian story. And as always, this day in history is brought to us by Hillsdale College, and it's the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And my goodness, the study of history, it matters. And not just one kind of history, we tell every kind, and we hit classic history, and that's a story like this, or Alexander Hamilton But we also do sports history, the arts. We have a superb piece on the doors and light my fire. And you've got to take a listen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. And when it's segments, just hit this day in history. And boom, there are all 110 of them. And again, great work, Greg Hangler, on this piece. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And if you've got a great history story that you think we should be telling, go to 844-627-8255. That's 844-627-8255. More after these messages. American Stories, and now it's time for our Voices of Main Street segment brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's nothing like seeing a small business succeed. And when a small business can save a town, oh my goodness, that's even better. And today we're talking about a family business that did just that. It became an internet sensation, revived a dying hobby, and brought new life to the small town of Hamilton, Missouri. Quilting involves sewing large pieces of fabric together to make a thick, and Comfortable Blanket, a hobby that 21 million people nationwide enjoy. Missouri Star Quilt Company started off to stave off boredom and turned into a global quilting sensation. Shadrach, one of our Hillsdale interns, has the details. While driving through the southeastern United States, you might happen upon Hamilton, Missouri, the birthplace of famed department store founder J.C. Penney. Ten years ago, Hamilton was a shrinking small town with little prospects and a crumbling infrastructure. That was until one woman changed everything. Hi, I'm Jenny from the Missouri Star Quilt Company, and I do online tutorials. There are over 300 of them. We are sitting here in our creative room. Uh, in our town here, we have 13 shops. They're all fabric-specific. So when you go into a shop, it's going to have solid fabric or floral fabric or Civil War fabric, and every shop is decorated around it. You can eat here. You can sleep here. It's just a great place to be. That was Jenny Doan, the face of the Missouri Star Quilt Company in Hamilton, Missouri. People describe Hamilton, Missouri as Disney World for quilters. And when you walk those streets, you can't help but believe them. Main Street is lined with cars, quilt shops, restaurants, and people from all over the world and all over the country hoping to meet their favorite YouTube celebrity. Mrs. Doan's online quilting tutorials have been viewed by millions of people all around the world. And every year, thousands of them make the trek to a small town in the middle of rural Missouri to meet her. But Mrs. Doan never set out to be famous. She didn't even start out as a professional quilter. I used to be a costumer. My background is in musical theater. Uh, when you make a costume, it doesn't matter how many months you spend gluing on sequins, it's got to look good from 20 feet out, hold together for two weeks, and somebody's going to use it one time, maybe two times. But when you make a quilt, it doesn't matter how beautiful or how old the fabric is or anything like that, but that quilt is gonna be cherished for generations. There's longevity to it. The older our quilts are, the more we cherish them, worry about how we're gonna take care of them, what are we gonna do, how do we get that spot out, all those kinds of things. Even if I make a quilt for you, you don't like it and you give it to the Goodwill, someone's gonna go along and go, I can't believe I found this. But how did this all start? 
How did Mrs. Doan go from making costumes for musicals to the single most famous quilter alive? Turns out, it was a family effort, led by one of her sons, Alan. It was 2008. Market crashed. My kids wanted to... They got worried about what we were going to do because we lost our retirement in the crash. And so um, one day I went to pick up a quilt. Uh, well, Alan said to me, he, you know, he was asking me, he says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to pick up a quilt. He said, what quilt is it? And I said, I don't know. It's been there like a year. And he's like, is that a thing? You know, is there, does it, are people really, are there just that few of them? And I said, no, they're just really backed up because there's a lot of quilters and people like to do it. He said, do you think you could do that? And I said, well, I could try, you know. And so they talked together. You know, long story short, they, they wanted to, uh, they decided to buy me a quilt machine and came to the house. It was too big for our house, so we had to buy a building. The building actually cost less than the machine did. So now we had this little business in this little shop over here, and I practiced on all my tops until I felt comfortable, and we started machine quilting for people. And Alan is a computer guy, so when he, he bought the machine, he started looking at what quilting was doing online, and it had not yet made the jump online and he came and asked me one day if I wanted to do tutorials online and I said sure what's a tutorial and he said well I want you to teach people to quilt online and uh, and I said how will people even find it and he said we're gonna put it on YouTube and I said isn't that what those crazy teenagers put their videos and he's like yes but it's gonna be our center for learning and I was like uh, nobody's gonna go look on the computer to learn how to do something you know I couldn't see it he insisted it was true and so we started doing videos online people started watching people that then called and said hey that fabric you used you know uh, I really want some of that and I would say well it's mine it's my fabric you can't use it have it <laughs> you know and they'd be like well I want some and I said the kids maybe we should think about doing this and we have over 300 tutorials now and maybe you know I don't know how many over but I know over and a new one comes every Friday. Every single Friday, there's a new quilt, a new idea for them. And everything I do is quick and easy. Probably for most people, they're much more visual learners than they realize. And if they can see it, they can do it. So that's basically, in a nutshell, how that all began. Where Mrs. Doan is the face of Missouri Star, Alan is the brains. He helped make the Missouri Star dream a reality. And along the way, he learned the ups and downs of running a small business. When you start, you know, everybody's in the groove of the picture. It's like, we're doing it! We're doing it! It's going to be amazing. You know, it's the same as, like, you, you get married, and, like, your photos on your wedding day are like, this is the best! And then fast forward five years, and it's like, no, we're still really happy, but we know that this, you know, the, you know it doesn't come free. It takes some work. Or we're having a baby! Look, it's right there! And then three years in, you're like, no, we got a baby. And uh, I'm happy. I'm absolutely happy. But this baby, this baby takes some work. You know, the pictures of us in this warehouse five years later are like, you know, we are not the happy, gleeful, you know, 20-year-olds that we were when we started this thing. We are happy. We are happy, but, like, we know that it doesn't come free, right? We, we understand the cost. Through the efforts of Alan and Mrs. Doan, Missouri Star has grown beyond a family business. They employ over 400 people from the surrounding area, spending a large portion of their profits on improvements to local infrastructure. They've renovated buildings, opened three restaurants, painted murals, and built sidewalks all out of pocket. Missouri Star spends so much time renovating that they even have their own full-time five-man construction crew. When we were talking to him, Alan explained the joys of growing up alongside the community as their business grew, not just growing as a business. So a lot of the satisfaction I get is over these community members that I, I've known and loved forever and watching them you know, if they, if, if they leave here, 
today. They go and they say, yeah, I helped this company grow from 50 to 400 employees. Here's what I did. Here's how I, yeah, I ran the warehouse. I know how to do that. So like hire me and I'll come and do it for you, right? Like they're, they're, they've developed a skill that's worth markedly more than what they could have come in with. So that's where a lot of my emotional connection to the, to the local people has come. And the pride that I take in this town. I mean, I'm walking down the street with my wife last night. I'm just like, I love this place. Like, I love that, that there's great food to eat. I love that people come here and smile all day. And that, like, you know, we got these beautiful murals up and around. Like, this town is getting way, way better. As we spent the day in Hamilton, Alan's words began to make more and more sense. We walked through quilt store after quilt store, searched for cuts on their custom-made iPad kiosks, were greeted by several enthusiastic employees, and enjoyed burgers served on classy little slabs of wood. Everything seemed less rural Missouri and more big West Coast city. However, a trip to Hamilton cannot be complete without the most important part of the experience, the fans. When we met Mrs. Doan and tried to find a location to interview her, a second would not pass without somebody recognizing her and asking for a picture. It felt like traveling with a movie star, except that movie star was a quilt maker in rural Missouri. While we were waiting to interview Alan, we met a particularly passionate fan. The first thing we noticed was his hat, which was covered in Pokemon pins. My name is Manny Caldera, and I'm from Los Angeles, California, and I am a quilter. I'm an award-winning quilter. And I belong to the Wandering Foot Quilt Guild in Arcadia, California, and I'm the only male in the guild. And I'm third vice president in charge of fundraising and thinking outside the box. And actually, I'm, I'm on the hunt for Jenny. I want to actually meet her before I go back to L.A. Manny had traveled all the way from Los Angeles to meet his quilting hero. This man was so invested in Missouri Star and what the Doves were doing that he traveled nearly 2,000 miles to see it. We asked some employees how far people traveled to visit Hamilton, and the furthest they could remember was Australia. That's halfway across the world to visit the quilting capital of the United States. Mrs. Doan believed that all of this travel was far from a coincidence. So one of the, one of the fun things for me is that um, since we've kind of taken this on, there are a lot of communities that say, why don't you come to our community and do this? And I'm like, you can do this for your community. People our age, my age, um, we are. We have more time, and we drive to see things. My husband and I drove three hours to see the world's largest pecan. It was concrete, but it got us there. Now, um, people drive to see the world's largest ball of string. If everything, if when people got there, it be, it was the center place for string cheese and stringed instruments and stringed art and everything macrame and everything embroidery and yarn was in that town, and that town became the center for string. It would be huge. People would be coming from all over to go there. And I just kind of feel like uh, that's what we've done a little bit here. What people don't realize, there's, you know, there's always people who don't love change. But what they don't realize is there's always change. You're either growing or dying. This was not at all our plan to begin with. The plan was to keep mother and dad out of their basement. And now, many years and quilts later, Hamilton, Missouri has more quilt shops than any other town in the United States. What started as a hobby has redefined the quilting business and revitalized a small town. A far cry from trying to keep busy during the recession. And what a great story. Thanks for bringing that to us, Shadrach. And thanks to Hillsdale College for loaning their young, talented people to us for the summer. And what a story, folks. Jenny 
and her family, 400 employees, one small town changed forever. That's just the power of small business to change lives. And, well, we love the folks at Job Creators Network who continually try and improve the lives of small business to fight back regulations and taxes so small business owners can grow their businesses and impact the lives around them. You can learn more about Job Creators Network at DefendMainStreet.com. The Missouri Star Quilt Company story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to be celebrating the life of Louis Armstrong. And I always think about the first time I had my little girl, Reagan, see Louis Armstrong in performance. And that's easy. Type in What a Wonderful World in Armstrong, and up comes this beautiful performance of What a Wonderful World. And my little girl just loved it the second it started, and I knew she would. And what a life he led. He was born on this day in history in 1901. And nobody has written better about Louis Armstrong than Terry Teachout, the Wall Street Journal theater critic, a great literary writer and art, arts writer. And he's written a play, Thatchmo at the Waldorf, about Louis Armstrong. He also wrote what I think is the definitive biography, Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong. And Terry wrote that back in 2009. One of the hardest parts of writing any biography is finding a fit subject. But sometimes they're in plain sight. Despite his incalculable contributions to American life, there had never really been an adequate narrative biography of Louis Armstrong. Why do you think that is? The biggest problem, I think, was that um, it wasn't until after the earlier biographies had been written that Armstrong's private tapes became available to researchers. Um, Armstrong was one of the first people in America to own a tape recorder. Uh, he, he bought an early model around 1947, 1948, and he bought it originally to tape his shows so that he could listen to them and perfect them. But back then, of course, tape recorders were a tremendous novelty. People played with them. And ultimately, Armstrong... Uh, started using his tape recorder to tape private conversations, not secretly, but uh, he would just leave it running at dinner parties. He would leave it running at the dressing room. He would dictate memories into it. Uh, he would dictate letters into it. And he preserved all of these tapes. Uh, by the end of his life, he had a, about more than 600 reel-to-reel tapes that were full of the kind of material that I'm describing to you. <clears throat> and this is heaven for a writer. It was heaven for a writer, and everybody knew that he'd made these tapes, but everybody also assumed that they were not playable, that they had been stored in the attic. You know, reel-to-reel tapes deteriorate fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, uh, the tapes were all playable. They were conserved by the Armstrong Archives at Queens College. They were digitally transferred to uh, CDs. They were indexed. At this point, they were made available to researchers, and this was the exact moment when I decided to write a biography. So suddenly, I had access to an enormous amount of material about Armstrong that no previous biographer had had, and it made a tremendous difference for me. Oh, my goodness. Writers uh, also, Terry, I believe, try to solve some mysteries. I mean, ultimately, you, you need to be surprised by something or advance the narrative in some way, or why bother writing? Uh, it certainly can't be for the money. That we know. You once <laughs> said that you wanted to know whether the man we saw on stage and on film was the same man off the stage. Yes. Talk about that. I knew that Armstrong was more complicated than he seemed. He, he couldn't not have been. He was a creative genius. And there's no such thing as a simple genius. I knew from having met people who knew Armstrong and having read everything about him that I could get my hands on that he had a temper, uh, that it was sometimes quite startling to the people he worked with. Um, I knew that, that he had opinions about people he had worked with, about the world he had lived in that were quite a bit sharper than what he had said in public for public consumption. And I thought it would be interesting to really try to explore Armstrong's life with the help of of his private tapes and find out whether there really was another Armstrong, a hidden Armstrong, uh, uh, you might say a darker Armstrong. And that was part of what what motivated me to write the book. And, you know... What's the pro- Before we dig into the, the biography itself and the details of his life, what single thing surprised you the most, Terry? Well, there's a sense in which nothing surprised me personally, because I went in knowing an enormous amount about Armstrong. Right. Uh, for me, uh, hearing the tapes was a matter of confirming things that I had suspected. Uh, I mean, there were small surprises, but... Uh, uh, there was nothing that, that shocked me personally. But I knew that what I was finding, uh, what I was finding additional material to support, was really going to be startling to people who only knew Armstrong through his music and through his television and film appearances. The Armstrong that we know from uh, the Ed Sullivan show, if you're old enough to remember him from back then, uh, the guy who seemed entirely happy, just a, a radiant son of happiness, uh, was not, he wasn't untrue. Armstrong was, in a sense, really like that. But there was more to him than that. And so I think what will surprise people who read my book and who see my, my play, which I wrote about Armstrong after the book, is to find out that Armstrong was a man with a temper, that Armstrong was... Uh, a man who could be quite difficult, uh, could be quite dark, uh, uh, had a, a depressive, almost passive side that came out sometimes. Um, and for those who have the mistaken notion that Armstrong was some kind of old-fashioned Uncle Tom, the biggest surprise of all is obviously to find that Armstrong was, in fact, a very realistic, disillusioned man who understood the world around him, who knew the score on race relations in the 50s, um, and who was prepared to speak very frankly about these things. Yet none of the things I have just said to you contradict 
the Armstrong that we do all know, because he was basically, I think, a fundamentally happy and fulfilled man. Uh, it was just that there was more to him than that. And that's what I tried to get at in writing Pops, my biography. And when we come back, more with Terry Teachout, Louis Armstrong's life. He was born on this day in history in 1901. When you smiling, when you smiling, smiles with you, baby, baby. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind, Georgia on my mind. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. For the hour, the life of Louis Armstrong. He was born on this day in history in 1901, and there's nobody better to talk to about the life of Louis Armstrong than Terry Teachout, who's the author of Pops, The Life of Louis Armstrong, written in 2009. He's also written a play, Satchmo with the Waldorf. And Terry, we left off talking about the humanity of Louis Armstrong and by the way, Terry, any of us who are fundamentally happy or any of us who know fundamentally happy people know that fundamentally happy people have tempers, they have yeah. a dark side, and that they're human beings. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And Armstrong was all of these things. Uh, the people I spoke to who had actually worked with him, played in his band, you know, all talked about how, without warning, he would explode into these red rages of wrath. And then they would go away, you know, like a like a summer storm will blow out. Uh, but while they were happening, they were astonished. Uh, this was just not consistent with the Armstrong they thought they knew. I think that really surprised me was how forthcoming all of these people were uh, in, in talking about this. At the same time, these are people who, without exception, said that they loved Louis Armstrong. I have never spoken to or read the account of anyone who knew Armstrong who didn't love him. Uh, he seems to have been that kind of unique personality. I, I sometimes like to say that what's interesting about Armstrong is that he's, I think, a fundamentally good and, and, and fulfilled and happy man who's not boring. There's nothing boring about him at all. At all, you know, he's a larger-than-life figure who lived an extraordinarily fascinating life. There's nothing dull about him. And yet, he's a good man, a kind man, decent man, yeah, and a happy man. He's also the first black man that Americans really allowed into their TV rooms. I mean, into their living rooms through TV, through the radio, through movies, through magazines. I mean, this is truly the first African-American male Americans knew. Yes, that's quite right, and it's awfully easy to forget. I mean, remember, we're talking about a man who was born in 1901, uh, who became a national celebrity, known not just to uh, music lovers, jazz lovers, but to the public at large, in the 30s, and who was before the public all the way to his death in 1971. So he's not our contemporary, and it's easy for us to forget just how important it was that he was embraced 
by people uh, who I, I think in many cases white people who had never really had these feelings about a black artist, a black entertainer, maybe not about a black person at all. That's a big, big thing in, in the, the social history, the cultural history of America. You bet. And let's talk about time and place, because all stories, and we learn this in Aristotle's Poetics, we learn this about all storytelling. It's character, it's time, and it's place. So let's talk about place first. New Orleans. It's where his life started. What role did New Orleans play in the shaping of Louis Armstrong's career and life, Terry? Well, it, it was the soil in which he grew. He was born in 1901. He, he liked to say, and I think he really believed, that he was born on July 4th, uh, 1900. <laughs> uh, but his birth certificate has since been discovered. He was born on August 4th, 1901. He was born, he was illegitimate. Uh, he was the son of a, of a worker in a turpentine factory who deserted the family. Armstrong used to say on the day he was born. Uh, he was born and grew up in Black Storyville, uh, the roughest part of New Orleans. His mother was a part-time prostitute. Um, he was, in, to put it as bluntly as possible, born in the gutter. Uh, but it was not your ordinary gutter. It was one in which the air around him was full of music. Because New Orleans, not just Storyville, but all of New Orleans, was a profoundly musical culture around the turn of the century. Jazz was just beginning to take shape when Armstrong was born in 1901. So he was, uh, in a very real sense, present at the creation. And um, because he was surrounded by music, but also because he was born into rough, rough circumstances, he became the man whom he became. Uh, a genius, a culture-transforming uh, musical figure, but also a man who was absolutely determined to get out of that gutter and to lead a different kind of life from the one to which he had been born. And, you know, we had just done an hour on Irving Berlin not long ago, Terry, and, you know, his circumstances were remarkable as well. Yes, you know, his, absolutely. His, not, fa his father's gone. Not at gone. all dissimilar, yeah. Yeah, not at all dissimilar. Jewish, back when Jews were not exactly welcome in this country. Talk a little about those kinds of similarities between the two men. I know you know a lot about Irving Berlin. I do. Um, it's interesting, though, until you just mentioned it now. I never, it didn't occur to me to think of the two men in connection. And in fact, uh, the connection makes very good sense. Um, you know, Armstrong is descended from slaves, people who have been brought to this country in slavery. Um, he's born into a culture that is prejudiced not just whites against blacks, but light-skinned blacks against dark-skinned blacks. Armstrong was very dark-skinned. And interracial prejudice was, uh, it was taken for granted in New Orleans at the turn of the century and for long after that. Um, he had a little bit of musical training uh, at the, the Waif's home, the, the, the orphanage. That's not quite the right word, but it's the closest we can come to. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in which he was schooled, but he was, except for maybe about six months of, of, of very basic musical training, he didn't have formal training. Um, and yet, because he was, like Berlin, uh, an untutored musical genius, um, he was like a human sponge who, who soaked up all of the sounds around him and recreated them in his own image, uh, and thus you have these two extraordinary men who, who come from broadly similar circumstances who took the sounds around them 
and made out of them something personal that became central to our culture. Yeah, and it's amazing that a Russian Jew gives us God Bless America and White Christmas. And what set me off, Terry, on writing about and thinking about Irving Berlin, I had seen a Bruce Springsteen show one day, and he was about to play This Land is Your Land, uh, which, of course, as he explained to the audience, was a rebuttal to Irving Berlin's song, God Bless America, because there were so many on the progressive left who hated that song. And, and in the end, this was Woody Guthrie's ode against capitalism and against private property in the end, Terry, in a very strange way. Well, Armstrong was not a person who had any great political beliefs. Uh, he didn't vote. Um, he never expressed, so far as I know, any specifically political opinions outside of the very particular context of the civil rights movement. Um, to the extent that you can see Armstrong as a political figure, it is in his lifelong belief in the power of hard work and self-help to ennoble the poor. And that is something in which he believed devoutly because he had done it himself. Um, he, he wouldn't have put it this way, but he really believed that there were deserving and undeserving uh, poor people who didn't try to, to better themselves, to, to get out of their original condition. And he had something not unlike contempt for people who didn't make the kind of struggle that he made. And of course, you, in looking back on his own life, and Armstrong, as you know, wrote two autobiographies and spent a great deal of time thinking about the meaning of his life. Armstrong, of course, did forget to factor in the fact that he was a genius, and when a genius pulls himself up by the bootstraps, uh, something different may happen. But he knew absolutely that, that, that hard work, that uh, Armstrong was not a bourgeois, but you know the kind of the kind of belief in in leading a a, a solid, respectable life uh, could change anybody's lot in life, and that is, I think, one of the reasons why he wrote his autobiographies and why he uh, wrote other autobiograph autobiographical documents that were preserved after his life, because he he wanted to convey to the world the meaning of his own life as a man who had transformed his lot, who had pulled himself up out of the gutter through formidably hard work, the work of an artist, the work that is necessary in order to master a musical instrument, to, to, to transform a musical language. He believed in these things passionately. And there was no more master of his instrument and command of it than Louis Armstrong, and a masterful performer, too. And when we come back, more with Terry Teachout. This day in history, Louis Armstrong was born in 1901, and we celebrate his life with a man who's written what I believe is the best biography. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
And we're back with an hour-long celebration of the life of Louis Armstrong, born on this day in history in 1901. And as always, our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College. And we return now to my conversation with Terry Teachout, author of Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, and also the Wall Street Journal theater critic. Dizzy Gillespie said that Louis Armstrong had a, quote, Uncle Tom-like subservience and a plantation character. And my goodness, James Baldwin, he was not exactly nice to Louis Armstrong either. Well, I think, I think especially in Gillespie's case, this is, this is a generational thing. And it's also the way that people respond to father figures. I have a feeling that that has a lot to do with it. Uh, Gillespie, well, let me back up. I mean, Armstrong came along at a time when he never called himself an artist. I think he understood quite clearly what he was. But he called himself an entertainer. Mm -hmm. And that was his self-understanding. Uh, his his intention was to delight the public in any way possible. He also liked to call himself a ham actor. He, he'd talk about wanting to go out on stage and make people happy by telling a joke. Um, Gillespie, although he was a bit of a clown on stage too, saw himself as an artist and being a, a black of the, the next generation. He was disturbed, I think, I think understandably, by Armstrong's... Uh, stage manner, which was shaped by the minstrel shows that he grew up uh, in that in that uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard for a younger person to imagine uh, what the life of an older person is like. Right. One of the reasons why I wrote Pops uh, was to try to show people that Armstrong, in his own time, into his own generation and the next generation of blacks, was seen not as an Uncle Tom, but as a race hero, as somebody who had 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 done great things and was himself quite obviously proud of his own achievements. Um, Gillespie lived long enough to change his tune about Armstrong. Uh, in his autobiography written toward the end of his life, he said that he had simply misunderstand, misunderstood Armstrong. Young people feel like that toward father figures. That's true. And, it, it, and I think it's also, Terry, that in the end, whether it's theater or whatever it might be, the next generation comes up and it wants to prove the last generation wrong. It wants that's to, right. It that's wants right. to make its claim. But it is quite true that there were those who, who never forgave uh, Armstrong because they, they didn't have the knowledge to see him in historical perspective. And all they saw was uh, this... this happy, grinning man who went out on the Ed Sullivan show and seemed like he didn't have a care in the world and a trouble in the world. And that, 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 that was not the way they thought black artists ought to present themselves. Uh, Miles Davis is the, the, the quintessential example here, uh, someone who absolutely saw himself as an artist, who, who was quite capable of treating audiences with contempt. He was famous sometimes for turning his back on audiences yep. in nightclubs and playing for them. And that was unthinkable to Armstrong because he really thought that it was his job and, in a sense, his duty uh, to, to, to bring happiness. He said, I'm here in the cause of happiness. That was what he understood his art as doing. Yeah, and it's interesting that, uh, you know, we're all a product of our times, and at the same time that Miles Davis was turning his back, Bob Dylan was turning his back, and right. it became sort of popular to sort of deride being popular or being an entertainer, Terry. 
Yes, I think part of the difference, of course, is that Miles and Bob Dylan are now themselves historical figures. That's right. We see them as figures of the past. And people who read my book or who see the play that I wrote about Armstrong, uh, which is fictionalized but true to his personality, I think are going to understand that this notion they may have of Armstrong as an Uncle Tom is simply not true. It's not true to the history. It's not true to the facts. It's not true to the way he felt about himself. And when you see him in historical perspective, it, it's very hard not to come away looking upon him as a heroic figure, uh, a genial, wonderful uh, man who appeared in the cause of happiness, but also, I think, a rather fearless person, a person who went into the Deep South in the days of segregation, fronting a mixed band, uh, something that was unthinkable, a person who, when New Orleans passed laws uh, uh, preventing mixed bands from appearing on the bandstand in the city, said that he would never again play in New Orleans until that law was repealed, and he didn't. He also wasn't afraid to take on the powers that be on occasion. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower understood that. Talk about that, Terry. No, that was actually the, the only time in which Armstrong did something that really made news in, a, in what you might call a political context was um, in the 50s, in uh, 57 specifically, when uh, uh, Governor Faubus of Arkansas uh, was determined to prevent the desegregation of the public schools after the Brown v. Board decision. Um, Armstrong, in an interview, spoke out quite passionately against what Faubus was doing. And a few days later, as, as history records, Dwight Eisenhower sent in the National Guard to uh, desegregate the schools. I don't claim cause and effect there, but what Armstrong did and said became a front-page story around the world, in part because it was not the sort of thing that, that he was identified with saying, and yet he was quite passionate in, in attacking Faubus and attacking uh, 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 Eisenhower for being pusillanimous, uh, John Foster Dulles. Uh, and he was even, he was quite profane about it in private. I mean, he called them names that, he could, that the newspapers couldn't print. Um, this wasn't characteristic of him, but it was the way he felt. And uh, Joe Glazer, his manager, uh, uh, describing what happened afterwards, said, you know, this just proves that, 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 that Lewis is a real man. And uh, that's, that's really, especially when you consider who he was, when he was. He was a popular entertainer in 1957, uh, when segregation was the law of the land. Uh, to have said what he said, uh, and stood behind it and absolutely refused to take it back, uh, I think was in many ways a genuinely heroic act. Oh, indeed. And the guy toured, what, Terry, something like 300 days a year? I mean, he made his act, he made his living entertaining folks. That's right. That's right. And here's the striking thing. It was not, insofar as we can tell, held against him. Uh, uh, he wasn't bounced off television shows. He got some hate mail about it. But mostly, I think people just realized that this was a man feeling justified anger and speaking out about it in a justified way. And it was Louis Armstrong. You know, it wasn't some uh, uh, a rabble-rouser. Right. It was the beloved Satchmo who said these things. And that made a difference, too. Indeed. And because he had not done it before and not after, it, that made it, may have been the ultimate difference, Terry. Yes, it really stands out uh, as one of the key moments in the history of his life. When we come back, our final segment, 
and the end of our discussion with Terry Teachout. On this day in history, Louis Armstrong was born in 1901. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Hello, Dollar. This is Louis Dollar. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. You look and swell, Dollar. I can't tell, Dollar. You still growing, you still growing, you still going strong. I feel the room sway while the band's playing one of our old favorite songs from way back when. So take a rap, fellas, find an empty lap, fellas, darling, never way again. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as always, our This Day in History is brought to us by Hillsdale College. And you can catch all of their great work and all of their great courses at hillsdale.edu. If you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. And now we finish up our hour-long celebration of the life of Louis Armstrong, born on this day in history in 1901, with Terry Teachout. The Wall Street Journal, and author of Pops, A Life of Louis Armstrong, written in 2009. We talked about place, New Orleans, but let's talk about time. If Louis Armstrong had been born in the hip-hop era of the 1990s in New Orleans, we would have had a very different outcome. Or maybe not. Well, I, obviously, there's no way no, There's no way of knowing. Uh, Armstrong was the right man at the right time. Is, is one way to look at it. Uh, jazz had taken shape. He didn't invent jazz. It was a, a completely uh, coherent music by the time he started playing it around, I guess, probably started playing it around 1915 or so, uh, something that would be recognizable as jazz. Um, but his genius, uh, which he brought to the rhythmic side of jazz, uh, was electrifying. Uh, he was in a sense, the very first jazz man to swing in the way we mean the term now, the modern sense of, of jazz's forward rhythmic propulsion. 
and everybody who heard him in person or who heard his records was galvanized by them. I mean, there were just countless people testified to having heard Armstrong and saying, that's it, I need that, that's what I want to do, that's the way I want to play. Um, very few examples of an artist who single-handedly, by his own example alone, deflected the course of an art form uh, in the way that he did. Um, it's hard to imagine anybody like him coming along 10 or 15 years ago and having that same kind of transforming force. Um, so I think he really was a, a creature of the moment, but a person who knew what to do with the moment. You bet. You know, that's, that's really the key, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's not enough to be smart. It's not enough to be talented. Uh, it's not even enough to have good timing. You have to know what to do at the moment. It has to be just a part of you. And it was a part of Armstrong. And it was coupled with this wonderful, engaging personality. That's really an important thing to remember. Um, Sidney Bechet, the great clarinetist and saxophonist, a little bit older than Armstrong, but came up around the same time, uh, was making very much the same kinds of revolutionary innovations in music. But Bechet did not have an attractive personality. He was a, a, a dark, almost paranoid person. He was not a person you would especially want to be like. Well, Louis Armstrong was a person playing music that you wanted to play, living the kind of life you wanted to live, with the kind of personality you wanted to have. That really was an irresistible package. Um, the thing that made the big difference uh, first was making records, which meant that you didn't have to hear him in person. Uh, in order to to feel his genius. And then a little bit later, network radio and movies, uh, which uh, brought him to the white audience, which uh, hadn't known about him before. I mean, in in, in in 1929, 1930, if you were a white person, you would have known about Armstrong if you were one of that rather small number of of white people who sought out uh, black records, race records. Or if you happened to see him on Broadway, during the short time that he appeared uh, in the show Hot Chocolates, which was his Broadway debut in 1929. Most people just didn't know about him. But radio, and and I think above all movies, introduced Armstrong, both the musician and Armstrong, the personality, to the great American public, which means simply by virtue of numbers, the white public. Uh, Bing Crosby did that, you know. It was Crosby who had been profoundly influenced as a musician by Armstrong, and who, when he became the biggest thing in Hollywood uh, in the mid-30s, insisted that Armstrong be allowed to co-star with him in one of his very first pictures and to receive above the title star billing along with Crosby. That triggered Armstrong's film career, and it was the film career that made him what we now call a superstar. My goodness, that almost makes him the Branch Rickey in a way. Of, yes, of there's, some, life. there's something to that. I mean, Armstrong, because of the kind of person he was, sooner or later these things would have happened for him. But but Crosby, because he was in such a position of power in Hollywood in the early to mid-30s, was able to cut through the crap, so to speak, yep. and say, if you want me, you have to have him. And Armstrong, being one of the most profoundly photogenic people who ever lived, you know, cameras <laughs> loved him, Hollywood took one look at what he was like in front of a movie camera, and they said, we've got to have more of this. You know, there's an interesting thing that you talk about in the book 
uh, that his musical talent obviously made him famous. But in the end, it was his personality that made him famous. I was watching a video of my little girl. At the age of three or so, I decided to start introducing her to various recording artists, music, musicians. And I played her a video of Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World, beautifully dressed. The band, as you'd said, was multi-ethnic. It's just stunning and startling. And at the end, I had also taught her the word exquisite. And she said the word exquisite after seeing that. Because that's what it is. It just makes you happy. It makes right. all of us that's happy. Right. What a talent. I, I think I wrote somewhere in the book he was the sort of person you could warm your hands on. And uh, uh, your, your little girl's experience is exactly what happened to me uh, when I was, um, I guess, nine years old. And I first saw Armstrong on television, on the Ed Sullivan Show, singing Hello, Dolly, which was then a, a pop hit. Uh, my mother told me to come in from the backyard one Sunday night that I should see this man, that he wouldn't live forever, and that I'd want to see him. And that was, it wouldn't have been the first jazz I ever heard, because my father liked jazz, but it was absolutely the first time I heard and saw Armstrong. And it made a permanent impression on me. I think it had something to do with the fact that ultimately, when I became a musician myself, I wanted to play jazz. And decades later, that I, I felt moved to write about Armstrong and devote quite a bit of my own life to to trying to, to tease out the answers to these questions that you and I have been talking about. Uh, but it was because I saw him on television. Uh, the movies started it, television finished it. Armstrong was one of the very first black entertainers to appear regularly on network television, which began in 1948. And uh, immediately after that, well, that same year, in 1948, he made his TV debut on The Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, and became somebody who appeared on Sullivan every year or two after that. Um, those television appearances, they made all the difference in the world. He was already famous. He was already world famous. But television did something that movies couldn't do. You used this phrase a little earlier. Television brought people into your home Yep. at a time when most Americans had never had a black person in their home. Uh, they had one on their television, and he was one who was, uh, in a word, irresistible. And they didn't resist him. They loved him. Terry, I want to read something from you and get your response. You know, sure. you're a reviewer yourself. A uh, Washington Post reviewer wrote this about Pops, which was the 2009 biography of, yep. of Louis Armstrong. He writes this, Let's propose that the best jazz expresses either the joy or the pain of making music. We can easily list the agonistas, Miles, Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker, Nina Simone. But whom do we turn to for joy? In a pinch, sure, Fats Waller, Art Tatum, Ella Fitzgerald. But to get the biggest pickup in the shortest span of time, I put on Louis Armstrong. He could be crooning, gone fishing with Bing Crosby, or crowing, I've got the world on a string, or else blowing the brass off his horn in dipper mouth blues. An explosion of sound so ecstatic as to make the blues impossible. The end result is always the same. I walk away a happier man. It wasn't until I read Terry Teachout's exceptional biography that I realized quite how problematic happiness can be or how heroic. Well, I didn't write that, but I wish I had. No, that was the Washington Post critic, but you know what? You couldn't ask for better words, Terry. No, you, you couldn't, and it expresses exactly how I feel about Armstrong, that there is... There is something heroic in his determination not to be crushed by life. 
Because look at what his life, not the successes of his later life, but look at what his childhood was like. Armstrong himself said that if he hadn't become a musician, he might have ended up on the gallows. Uh, which I think is just a perfectly realistic uh, mm-hmm. way of acknowledging, you know, how his life might have taken shape. But no, uh, he embraced happiness. He embraced uh, acceptance of of that which we cannot change, and he embraced the go- the gospel of work as a way of transforming and ennobling life. And the result is an art that is in the best possible sense of the phrase, infectiously happy. I really do not see, as this, as this writer says, I do not see how you can listen to Louis Armstrong and not come away smiling. Yeah, I dare people, actually. And, and, and it shows you their basic desire either to not be happy or just be, they're incapable. Some people, as you know, Terry, I think are incapable of being happy. Yes, that's right. That's right. Uh, including some jazz musicians. <laughs> including some jazz, and some playwrights, and some actors. Terry yeah. Teachout, uh, thank you so much for all this time, and I'm looking forward to getting to see the play. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And it doesn't get much better than that, folks. The life of Louis Armstrong, a complicated life, but a beautiful life, and a life well-lived. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, Louis Armstrong was born in 1901.